Hello, this is Tommy Franks. Welcome to the Four Star Leadership Podcast, product of the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum. We're here to get a view into the lives of the legacy makers, the movers and the shakers of today. Offer insights from the full spectrum of the leadership community. We'll talk to former four-star students and explore their leadership development path. We'll work to find out what they are about today and learn from the opportunities they've made for themselves in this world. It's my distinct pleasure to welcome you to this podcast. Remember, leaders are not born, they're developed. episode 35 and the last episode in season three of the core principles of leadership with general tommy franks podcast i'm your host dr jill green and today i am honored to be able to speak with manu meal manu is currently the ceo of the youth-led nonprofit bridge usa which creates spaces on high school and college campuses for open discussion between students about political issues Bridge USA began with two college campus chapters in 2016. And as a freshman at UC Berkeley in 2017, Manu witnessed angry and violent protests on campus over the planned visit of a conservative speaker. These events inspired Manu to establish Bridge Cal, the third chapter in the nationwide movement on college campuses that aims to promote democracy not partisanship. After graduating from UC Berkeley, Manu became the CEO of the San Francisco-based Bridge USA and watched as the movement has grown from three college chapters to 50, as well as 23 high school chapters across 23 states. Bridge USA emphasizes the importance of empathy and understanding, ideological diversity, and solution-oriented politics. By engaging America's youth in constructive discussions, they are equipping the next generation of leaders with the skills necessary for navigating conflict, finding solutions across differences, and building bridges in their communities. Through his work, Meal has contributed to national media outlets such as NBC News, Newsweek, and Forbes, advanced pro-democracy efforts nationally, and led the policy operations for a Baltimore mayoral candidate. In 2022, at the age of 22, Meal was named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 list featuring education leadership standouts. He is also the host of a national weekly podcast called The Hopeful Majority. Before we get started in our program, We'll have a word from one of our major sponsors, REI Oklahoma. REI Oklahoma is proud to be part of the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum in the production and distribution of these podcasts designed to inspire leaders and difference makers. At REI Oklahoma, we have been working with small business leaders, entrepreneurs, and people who are driven to succeed for years. 
highly motivated people working to own their own businesses, live in their own homes, and make the world a better place since its beginning. REI Oklahoma has continued to identify hurdles and deliver holistic solutions to create job growth and help neighborhoods thrive in both rural and urban communities. REI Oklahoma looks forward to visiting with you about helping your business and community grow. Visiting reiok.org or call 1-800-658-2823 to start the conversation. The Labarge family is a fourth-generation Oklahoma family. That may not sound like a long time, but our grandfathers were born here, within the Comanche Nation, before the land grant. We are the proudest sponsor of the Tommy Franks Four-Star Leadership Podcast. We hope listeners will heed the words of these distinguished men and women who have served our country at the highest levels and across all walks of life. Manu, it is a pleasure to have you join me today. Um, can you, we're just going to start off. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, well, Jill, first of all, let me just say it's it's awesome to be with you, spend time with you. Thank you, everybody, for for listening. Uh, when, I, when you'd reached out to me, you know, I have such respect for uh, uh, leadership in our military and trying to understand, you know, the intersection between service in so many different ways. And so I'm just grateful to be here with you. Uh, so taking a step back, I am somebody that basically had no interest in politics. Uh, I was a pre-med student uh, and as an Indian American person and son of Indian immigrants, uh, my mom was very focused on me being a doctor and uh, a lot of things changed and we can get into it, but I now lead an organization called Bridge USA. Uh, which essentially helps college and high school students have conversations across lines of difference. And the objective is to build a, a movement of young people that are focused on trying to change the way in which we actually talk politics so that we can actually try and solve our problems. How did you initially get involved with uh, Bridge USA? Yeah, so this this goes back, I guess, to me being a pre-med student. So in 2017, I was a freshman at UC Berkeley out in California. And uh, second semester of my freshman year, I remember I was walking back, Jill, from my mat seminar, and there were these, you know, massive protests off in the distance. Now, protests at Berkeley, Berkeley protests everything, big things, small things. We've got a great relationship with shaking things up. And so that wasn't particularly different. But I was walking back and uh, from my mat seminar, there's this cafe and inside the window is broken in. And so there's a TV screen at CNN, UC Berkeley students protest free speech. And I was like, OK, this is a little different. And what was crazy about that moment was the television crew filming that segment from CNN was standing right next to me. And that was like the breaking of the fourth wall where I felt like I was no longer just a spectator in, in sort of history, but I felt like a participant. And the next day, I mean, the campus community was reeling. These, these protests were covered across the country. Uh, it cost the university, I think, around $3 million in damages. There's a, lots of injuries, all because sort of uh, the speaker came to speak on campus. And so the next day, me and some random people who are now some of my best friends basically got together and we said, hey, you know, let's just create a space for dialogue. Like, let's just, and because it was Berkeley, we called it therapy circles. And, <laughs> and essentially it was like, let's just all sit down and have a conversation. And we invited the people that protested the speaker and we invited the people that invited the speaker. We invited faculty, administration. From there, we learned that, you know, people actually want to listen to each other, hear each other, to understand difference to to not actually meet difference with so much veracity uh, and vigor, but instead a sense of understanding. 
And so we started building these college and high school chapters across the country. And, and now I'm talking to you. So on that first initial meeting at yeah. uh, UC Berkeley, did you see any change after that when you brought in both sides and the administration and everything? So when we started that conversation, let's just say that I was uh, I was a little naive in uh, understanding how to pull something like that off. And the reason was because I just assumed, well, we're going to get into a room and people are just going to start talking. And of course, when we brought everybody together and we were already, we were surprised that people even showed up because again, I had no background in any of this. We had flyered a bunch of our dorms and our students and we said like, let's have this conversation. So naturally you can imagine when you have groups that are different in their identity and their beliefs all coming together there, they're going to be very hawkish at best and adversarial at worst. And the question became, well, we've got everybody in this room, but how do we actually breach that, uh, that door and that door being this door of misunderstanding and conflict? And how do we get to something deeper? How do we get to the fact that all these people in this room also have families and stories and they all have different shared senses of vulnerability? And essentially what we started doing was we just started sharing our background. We started talking not about what had happened, but just about who we were as people. And what I learned in that moment, Jill, was that one of the best ways to break through misunderstanding and political or ideological or familial divisions is to just be vulnerable and vulnerability, you know, uh, cuts through that dense, uh, uh, sense of fear and, and conflict that we have with people. And so that's what we learned. And that's, that's sort of what started, started the whole thing. Okay. So, you know, vulnerable, I've, you know, I'm a lot older than you. So, um, and you when know you much are, more. So tell tell me no, no, tell no, me no, if no. we're on the right path. No, I <laughs> I am so I applaud your efforts and what you're doing. So, but you know you are correct when you say that people when you when you allow yourself to be vulnerable, that is when you're able to listen at your at your greatest. And yep. um, I, I agree with you on that. So when I was researching you and and all of the interviews that you've done over the past, I kept hearing the term civil discourse. You mentioned that um, a lot. And why is civil discourse a good thing? And what does it look like to you? So I'll I'll answer that question in a slightly different way. So I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, the uh, what's happening in college campuses after the the 10-7 attack on Israel. And the corresponding sort of conflict and tumult we're seeing across the country. And uh, the question that I've started actually asking people is not whether or not civil discourse is important, but what happens when we don't have it, the reverse. And, you know, over the last four or five years, um, oftentimes I would, I would say very just honestly, you know, when people say, what do you do? It's, I, I, I would say, we help people talk to each other. And they're like, really, is that it? And I'm like, that's it. And and now when we say we help people talk to, the, to each other, people say, you help people talk to each other? Wow, uh, we need more of that. And, and, and the fact is that I think the importance of civil discourse is not, I think, underscored by why it's needed, but I think more about asking the question of what happens when we don't have it as a society. And I think we forget that in a democracy where we're so technologically advanced and there's a complexity to our systems, that we forget that the core unit of our democracy and our society, just like in the military, is people. And, you know, just like in the military, you set up infrastructures and formats and procedures and standard operating procedures to organize folks in a way in which they can be the best of their capacity. 
Our job is to help people meet people with a sense, not of fear, but a sense of curiosity. And I think when you can start to meet difference with curiosity, right? And, and a feeling that, uh, well, you know, I might disagree with Jill on this, this, and this, but let me maybe give her the benefit of the doubt and try to understand, well, why does she believe what she believes? You get somewhere. And that's, I think, the fundamental stumbling block and necessity for progress. And just the last thing I would say is when you look at our campuses right now and what's happening in the country, um, to me, unfortunately, it's not surprising. And the reason why it's not surprising is because what else do you expect when you have people that have such different ideas and different beliefs and a sense of deep identitarian purpose all coming into conflict with each other, but you create no space for them to build trust? That's what we see in campus and that's what we see in our country. That is correct. So and even, I mean, our democracy, if you look back into history and, you know, during the Revolutionary War, our democracy was built on civil discourse. I mean, we had people, mm-hmm. we had founding fathers that were very adamant and they they shared the belief that, you know, for the vision of America, but how to build America, it was, you know, they didn't agree on very many things there. They were very opposite ends of the spectrum, but yet somehow through, you know, these 250 plus years, it's, it's worked. So, um, and it's, it's, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And there's just one other thing I would underscore there is the notion of these founding fathers coming together to build a society around discourse and talking and listening. And that's a very radical concept in the history of humanity. You know, we, we oftentimes, I think we need to be a little bit better at making the argument that building a society of 330 million people that all look differently than each other, heavily armed, is, is no easy task. And in fact, it's, it's probably one of the most ambitious social experiments that humanity's ever undertaken. And so I think when you cast it as this radical, exciting, ambitious experiment, then suddenly civil discourse sounds a little bit less like, you know, dried kale or like kumbaya, like let's just all (laughs) hold hands and seems a little bit more impactful and powerful. Yes. So when you're out there, um, you know, I kind of envision you as kind of a mediator, you know, in mm-hmm. a sense, you know, you're, you're bringing both sides and, you know, different viewpoints to the table. So what do you think is the number one thing missing in conversations today with our youth? It's a great question. So my role over the past couple of years is now I'm less on the ground, actually meeting the conversations and trying to, you know, support the organization on a national level. But one thing that I can tell you from the feedback that we get from students across the country is that What's essentially missing right now, I think, in our society is that we just don't give each other the chance to be better. We just have stopped giving people the chance to mess up. We approach every conversation with this notion that, one, you must have an opinion about everything possible under the sun. Two is that that opinion must be absolutely correct in every situation. And three is that if I disagree with you, it must mean that I'm fundamentally evil or have bad intentions. And I think all of that is just a result, again, of of this simple notion that we've forgotten what drives our society, and that is people. And the the demand that I've seen across the country when you talk to normal people on the streets and they're saying, you know, I want to have a conversation with somebody that's different than me. I, I have no issue with, you know, disagreement. I want to listen to people. I I don't think that I have all the right ideas. And so the question is, why is it that you know, while the majority of people in our country want 
a society built on civil discourse, what we're seeing at the national level is is deep sort of polarization. And I have thoughts on that, but we can get into that later. So, and and you hit on this. So, and our youth today, they see and and they hear so often that the the narrative of if you're not with us, you're against us, or yeah. the you versus me, or the I'm right, you're wrong mentality. So what steps as, you know, mm-hmm. our youth, as they're coming into their own, how, when this is approached to them, you know, how can we change their thought process and, mm-hmm. you know, make it into a, you know, a, a civil conversation? So I'll, I'll uh, tell you a quick story. So in 2019, we held uh, a discussion, one of our, one of our many discussions at our chapter uh, at UC Berkeley around homelessness. So one of the problems that UC Berkeley has is a a homeless student population because the university admits way more students than it can basically provide housing for. And uh, as is the case in a town like Berkeley, there's also a place in, in the city called People's Park, which is a place where a bunch of the homeless people in the city live. And the university proposed this plan. They said, all right, what we're going to do is we're going to build dorms on this on this area and so that we can house our students. And it led to massive conflict and challenges. And we hosted this discussion and we invited the people that were homeless in the city living at People's Park. We invited the students that were homeless at the university. We invited the people that wanted to build the building. We invited the people that didn't want to build the buildings. We invited everybody. And as this conversation starts, this one person comes up who is leading the homeless people that are protesting the building of this, this dorm. And they show up with the exact same mentality that you talked about. They said, you know, they, they, they showed up saying, I don't want to even have this conversation. You're either with us or you're against us. And I said, just give it a chance. Let's just, you know, let's actually just hear each other out. Let's see what you've got to say. By the end of that conversation, Jill, you know, the person that was talking the most and participating was that person. And I think it, it, it all boils down to the fact that oftentimes we have actually very rarely actually talked to somebody that we disagree with in our daily life. You know, most of us have perceptions of, Democrats or Republicans or of, of uh, different ethnic groups or identity groups or younger people or older people, we've made perceptions and ideas of them without ever actually engaging with them. The amount of times I'll walk in a room of young people and ask them, you know, uh, do you have strong beliefs about Republicans? So yes. Do you have strong beliefs about Democrats? Yes. And you say, have you ever actually talked to a Republican? No. Uh, have you ever actually talked to a Democrat? No. And, and so... The question then becomes, you know, are we actually that divided or is it just that we completely misunderstand each other? So like we talked about, our alumni to Four Star, they're um, our newest ones are mostly juniors and seniors. And uh-huh. um, they're off visiting colleges and then they're coming home and discussing things with their parents about what they see on these campuses and, you know, positives and the negatives and, you know, at this time in our lives, you know, sometimes the downright scary. So what is the one piece of advice to students that are looking at colleges and they're seeing the upheaval right now on all of these college campuses? What would be the one piece of advice you'd give them as they're searching for that next step in life? That you have the power to change what you think is not right. And what I mean by that is you know, when you're touring campuses or when you're looking at, and even take, forget campuses for a second, whenever you see anything, I think, out there in the world, then you think, man, that's a really uh, crappy thing. I don't like the look of that. I think we radically underestimate our 
capacity and ability to actually make a difference in the face of what we see are these massive systems. You know, when I was a, uh, I was a very average student. I barely got into UC Berkeley. I was waitlisted. Uh, I got rejected by every single college that I'd applied to outside of UC Berkeley and the University of Michigan. I almost, I barely got into college. I also barely got out. I almost didn't graduate. They, they didn't want me there and then they didn't want me to leave. And, <laughs> and what, what was funny in that experience, and now that I, I've almost spoken at every single institution that I've been rejected at, and one of the funniest things that I've found in that experience is that um, as I've gotten to know people and, and folks that lead our society, whether it's the president of the United States to members of Congress to celebrities, to you name it, you ultimately realize that all these people are also just, and when you understand that society is really just led by people like you and I, you suddenly start to see yourself as somebody that actually has the capacity to push levers. And this doesn't have to be a politics. If you're listening to this, whatever you, you know, you care about, whether it's science or business or arts, or you have no idea what it is you want to do. The fact is that the levers of society that you want to pull on are much more pullable than you actually think they are. And when you start to overestimate your ability to create change, you'll fall somewhere short of where you would have been if you'd never tried. And that's how I would approach the next four years, the next 10 years. And man, we put so much pressure on our kids to get into good schools or the rat race of colleges and all that. And what I'll just tell you is um, some of the smartest people I've met and have met went to community colleges and some of the dumbest people I've ever met went to Harvard and Yale. And so you, you'll be fine wherever you go. Just work hard. So, I mean, that makes me laugh because um, General Franks talks about um, he he tried real hard at um, the University of Texas and, you know, he's got the Fs on the transcript to show it. And after about three tries, they just said, you know, yeah, no, no <laughs> more. So, and um <laughs> then he went back to his hometown in uh, where he graduated in Midland and his uh, superintendent made a, a comment to him about, you know, gosh, if, if anyone was going to succeed it, you know, I wouldn't have guessed it was you. And he, he made a, a comment of, you know, ain't this a great country? So, yeah. and yeah. I think that is, that's what makes our country so great. Um, you know, I have F's on my transcript too. I started at a community college because that's where my dad told me I needed to go. Yeah. And, um, it, it served me well. So, um, I think that's great advice. So at our four-star leadership, when we bring our students in, we immerse them in what General Franks calls his four stars of leadership. And mm -hmm. those are character, communication, common vision, and caring. So, um, and then not any one of those principles works without the, the, the support of another one, mm -hmm. but they're all built around empathy and respect. And, um, when I was looking and reading about bridge USA, I think that, um, that's really kind of the, the morals that your, your organization stands on too. Um, and so how do you teach those values? through Bridge USA? So I, I actually wrote down the four C's, you know, character, four stars, character, communication, common vision, and caring. You know, uh, I used to think that these things had to be taught. And then I thought about my own experience, uh, which is that I never went to some management school. I never went to like the CEO training program or whatever you want to call it. 
I really did not, you know, uh, ever someone sat, sat me down and said, you know, here are the fundamental values you have to learn. What I found was that actually you have most of those things. It's about actually trying to bring it out within you. Because I think oftentimes when you think about, you know, character, or communication, or vision, or, or having empathy or caring, and you think that I have to be taught this, what you assume is that it's something that is not innate, but it's something that's external that I have to learn. But I think when you flip the scale and you understand that it's actually within you to be able to be all of those things, it's just a question of bringing them out. Suddenly, I think it makes it much more easy to externalize. And, and I, you'd be, you know, I'm shocked when, I mean, we have college chapters across the country and we have students that are, that are highly introverted, you know, that would have never thought that they would have the capacity to deliver vision or communicate effectively. Or we had students that were highly extroverted that never thought they could shut up and listen to somebody. And the fact is that all of these students have succeeded in various ways. And so it's just, I think about you as a student trying to think about what are the life experiences that I can tap on to help me be a better communicator? Because everybody has the capacity to be a great communicator or a great leader. It's just about trying to understand how to shape your life to fit that. And then I think suddenly it becomes much more conquerable as a task. So, and we, we touched on this a little bit, but, um, you know, we're both part of organizations that we're trying to break the cycle, um, you know, and bring some, you know, empathy and respect to all, you know, that that's what this country is built on. You know, it's, yeah. we're a melting pot for a reason and everyone, you know, deserves to be here. So, and, you know, as we're sitting here conducting this interview, there's students of different faiths and cultures that are being harassed and, you know, some, you know, fear for their safety on, on some of these college campuses since, um, yeah. the, the, uh, actions on October 7th, how do we break that cycle? Like mm-hmm. how, how, how do students stand up? So I think first I, I would reminisce in saying, you know, find out if there's a bridge chapter on your campus or a college you're about to go to or think about starting one um, or start something. You know, the fact is that you'd be shocked at, you know, the fundamental, I think, power in, in, in uh, the secret sauce that I found, Jill, when I think about campuses and the, 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 the lack of safety environment is that oftentimes when you feel unsafe, you think that you're the only person that feels that way. And Oftentimes there's power in knowing that there's a lot of people that feel that way. And so the question is, can you build a community of those people? When the protests happened at UC Berkeley in 2017, we assumed we were the only crazy, weird, wide-eyed people that wanted to just like have a conversation. Turns out that everybody wanted to have a conversation. It's just that you've got these very loud and vocal, but, but extreme voices across the political spectrum and across the ideological spectrum that dominate the microphone. And so the question is not whether or not those people are going to be quiet. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Because the power actually in, in and we actually, I launched this podcast called The Hopeful Majority. And the reason why it's called The Hopeful Majority is because I think there is a hopeful majority of people out there that feel like what's happening right now is not okay and not normal. And it's not a question of politics. It's a question of humanity. And so when you're sitting there as a student, you're feeling unsafe, you're feeling difficult in knowing man, am I going to be able to say something or am I going to be able to speak up? Know that there's a large community of people that feel just the way you do. And there's power in numbers and there's strength in community. And our job is to mobilize and build that community. And Bridge is one of the ways in which you can do that. 
Hello, this is Dr. Jill Green with the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum. I would like to tell you about one of our partner sponsors, Justin Krieger. He has worked as an independent insurance agent at Krieger Insurance Agency in his hometown of Hobart, Oklahoma since 1999. Justin is honored to help with our annual Celebration of Freedom event and has served on the board of directors for the General Tommy Franks Leadership Institute and Museum for many years. He is a fifth generation farmer and rancher in Kiowa County where cattle, crops, and even insurance is sold with a handshake. Give him a call at 580-726-3076 or stop by the office and speak with Justin, Denise Reeves, or Wendy Block about your insurance needs. Krieger Insurance is thankful for their loyal customers and friends who have supported them through the years and look forward to earning your business as well. Justin feels honored to live in such a great country and he is proud to be a sponsor of the Core Principles of Leadership podcast. Please enjoy the rest of this podcast experience brought to you by your friends at Krieger Insurance Agency. So, and that was going to, I was going to hit on your podcast next. I've listened to several and um, I suggest to all of our listeners that they, they check that out. And I, it's a weekly podcast. Is that correct? Every Monday. Yeah. Every Monday. So, um, and I love the name, the the hopeful majority, because I think you're right. I think the majority of our country is just sitting right there in the middle. Um, some are probably afraid to, you know, speak their mind and raise their voice. So with that being said, you know, these, when you talked about being at UC Berkeley and you, you said that, you know, you were probably a little too naive. I think being naive in some of these situations is good because naive people really think that they, you know, have the power to change the world. And that's what we need. We need naive people that really can step up and be the change that our world needs. So, um, other than being naive and being in that hopeful majority, um, what else creates change in this world? Knowing your why, your purpose, having a very clear answer to why. And the reason why I think why is important is, uh, and I think the way that you stated it, Jill, which is that you've got these people um, that are engaged and being naive allows you to achieve that change uh, is important. But the other part of that is that I had a very strong sense of understanding of why I'm doing what I'm doing, because the process is really difficult. You know, this is something that we should be honest about, you know, leading, creating change, building anything, uh, is hard. It's difficult. There's more days than not where you'll actually feel unmotivated to do the work. Um, I think oftentimes people in positions of leadership and success, uh, rarely talk about uh, the fact that most days of the year, they wake up tired. And and most days of the year, you're picking up the call and you're probably dealing with the problem. You know, almost every day, my inbox, it, when people are reaching out to me and talking to me, they're not reaching out about all the great things happening. They're reaching out about the challenges or flaws or the problems in their work stream. So know your why. And the reason why it's important to know your why beyond that is also because it helps you find hope and capacity. And the last thing I'll say is that, you know, success is a very multidimensional endpoint. You know, 
when we think about success from a, from the standard view in which society thinks about it, what you think about success is probably somebody that makes a bunch of money, is in a high level of power, and has achieved a lot. And some of the most successful people I know have really amazing families. They have two or three kids, and they're living on a farm, enjoying their life. That is also success. I think you as a person have to ask yourself, what is the life that you want to build? And be okay with the fact that the answer to that question only matters to you. And if the answer to that question is not building a large company that has a lot of employees, that's perfectly okay. Because in the process of answering and realizing your why, you're adding net value to society. And that's ultimately all that matters. Before you went off to to Berkeley, um, what did a leader look like to you? Probably somebody like General Franks. (laughs) You know, uh, uh, probably a leader. I think it's such a good question. You know, uh, somebody that people looked up to, people followed, someone that had authority in a very traditional sense uh, was a leader. And I by no means fit any of that in high school. If you went back and asked any of my teachers or friends, I was a very middle of the pack person. So once you've started this journey on, you know, bringing people together, does a leader have a different look to you now? Yes, because I think the, the, the question of why is so important, because I think a leader is somebody that understands their why and knows how to realize it. And when you're in the process of realizing your authentic and honest why, you then naturally start to do the things that are required to execute against that vision. And so that could mean having a very successful family. That could mean being a mother raising two really successful kids. You know, that could mean um, building a large organization. Uh, And ultimately, you know, we all (laughs) reach the same destination. And at the end of the day, when you talk to people that have led and built large organizations or have just lived very healthy, happy lives, ultimately what they're thinking about at the end of the day is not how much money they've made or or what they've done with the impact. It's really the people around them and the relationships and and the people that impacted their life and the legacy that you leave behind and the people that you've most closely touched. And so I think that's ultimately the success of a life well lived. And um and, and whatever it is for you that motivates you, that's what matters to you. Very, very nice. So um, I saw an interview when you, you kind of talked about the events that, you know, had occurred um, during your lifetime. And um, some of them have been, you know, some really scary times in our world. So um, you said that you were born after 9-11, so you didn't get to actually witness firsthand the American spirit and unity that was displayed during that time. I mean, if you go back and look, 9-11, there was 115 nations that were affected with individuals that were killed on just that one day in one, you know, in, in one event in America. So, um, you know, that shows how diverse our country is, but then, um, you know, the flags were sold out. People were, you know, supporting everybody Mm -hmm. everywhere. It didn't matter the background or your color or your religion or your anything. So, and I feel like God forbid, if something was like that to happen now, 
I think it would just, you know, ultimately divide our country even more mm. just kind of. So what do you can you pinpoint something in our history from, you know, September 11th, 2001 mm -hmm. to now that has made, you know, our country, you know, have mm. such rhetoric like it does? Mm. You mean rhetoric in the sense of just very divisive rhetoric? Or you mean yeah, unifying very divisive. Events? You know, yeah. I mean, you know, just just for instance, on you know, in, in Israel, that mm -hmm. you would think that that would bring such unity to sure. to a world, but it's really you know divided us even that much more. Yeah. So why is what is the difference mm -hmm. between that event and how? Yeah you know, 20 some odd years ago, we reacted to 9-11? Yeah, it's a great question. So I was, and just for clarification, I was, I was born 98. So I was two years old in 9-11. Oh, in fact, okay. I actually lived, uh, to your point about unity, I was uh, at that time living with my grandparents in India while my parents lived in the United States. I was born in the US, but I was living in, 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 in India. And one of the stories I'm told, I don't know if it's true, but what I've heard is that the United States actually sent a State Department official to check on me to make sure that I was all right. I mean, it was the first time that uh, uh, I, uh, our family felt like we were actually cared for by the country. And to your point of, of the unity, one of the other things that um, I'm told is that right after 9-11, that the end of that day, you had a vigil in front of Capitol Hill with all members of Congress, you know, singing and holding flags. And even to now, for me, it's like, man, what, what has changed? And mm -hmm. I think there's, there's, two things that I think are very different now, Jill. I think the first is that the United States, I think, has always been divided. I think there's something to actually think about when it comes to uh, who we are as a society. We've always had very different, diverse people, you know, from the Civil War onwards. And before that, when the Founding Fathers started, I think what's different is that now you're forced to confront that difference all the time and not in person, but online. Uh, you are now, you, you now know the lifestyle of somebody living in Alabama or in New York city, you know, you now know the values and you constantly see them. You know, you can, I say something right now, it gets clipped, it gets shared everywhere, you know? And right. so one is that it, we have, we are now actually forced to confront our difference. It's not that the difference never existed. It's that now we have to live with it. And I think the second thing that's changed is that we have such different bubbles of information. And as a result of those bubbles of information, you're almost living on two different life tracks, which is why the chapters that we're building, the fundamental goal is let's just start helping people of very different apertures that have never interacted, just interact. Uh, last quick thing I'll say on this, um, the town that you live in near Oklahoma, you know, when I drove through Oklahoma, I was driving from Austin. I was driving from Austin to Boston. I, one of the things, one of my favorite things to do is to get on the road and just like drive, not on the highway, but in in like the routes. And mm -hmm. so, so when you drive from, you know, Austin, Texas, up through Northern Dallas, and on your way up to Oklahoma, and Arkansas, the people living between Dallas and Austin have rarely ever interact with the people that live in those cities. You know, uh, when you're driving from, let's say, Richmond, Virginia to Washington, D.C., the people in D.C. have never actually talked to the people that live in Fredericksburg, Virginia. You know, it, it's, it's, we're living on very different. You think about the war that General Franks led. 
it was a war that was largely bo- uh, uh, the brunt of it. The people that fought it were largely people in very specific communities. And so we're building a society in which people have just such different visions of what the world looks like. And when you have different realities that never converge, then you see what, what happens with something like the attacks on Israel. Very, very true. So um, if you or any of our listeners study history um, and here at the museum, we try to highlight um, the the positives of you know, General Franks's leadership and the hope that, you know, um, is inspired throughout his life of just an ordinary individual who was adopted into a very working class family and um, just found his way mm-hmm. into the military from, you know, not making it into college. And so um, when he was put into command at central command president bush even before 9-11 he used him more in a very diplomatic um kind of a state department capacity mm-hmm. he would send him around to all these countries that fall under central command and he got to know the leaders he you know he spoke to them and even today um you know he's been out of the spotlight for 20 some odd years some of those leaders are still some of his very best friends and they have very, very diverse backgrounds. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. General Franks, you know, and I can say this because I'm one too. I mean, he's just a country bumpkin, Sure. Um, you know, um, he's just a down earth, Uh you know, grew up on a farm with working class parents. And one of, he calls one of his best friends, the King of Jordan. Uh So, I mean, you can't really get much, which is crazy diverse than that. But what made it work was he didn't go into these other countries and try to bring American values to them or preach, you know, our religious ways or our cultures or anything. He went in and he found common goals that we all wanted and, you know, deserved. And so I think that once you look back in history during the war, there's always going to be pundits that are against war and mm-hmm. against the way that maybe he ran the war. But you don't ever hear of anyone criticizing General Franks's leadership abilities. And I think to to someone that I now know on a very personal level, mm-hmm. I think that that is an extraordinary. I mean, you know, you can, you know, debate war and the way a war is run all day long. I mean, and it should be, I have, my husband was in the military and, you know, it should be war is something that should be debated and, you know, military troops should be held accountable. So, um, I think that that is what, um, our world needs right now are leaders that are not going in to push their values and their beliefs on one another. It's just, and, and I think that that is where we have a common a common goal is as both of our organizations, you know, we're not pushing a conservative agenda or a progressive agenda. You know, we want our youth to educate themselves, yeah. find the answers to issues that they are believing in, and then form their own values and their own, you know, beliefs. So um, how do you... It's it's hard for students to, you know, um, they're, some of them are very vulnerable when they go off to college, yeah. you know, and they, they just want to find that right crowd to fit in with. Mm-hmm. So how do you 
you know, when you're speaking to these students about, you know, using their own values to, you know, speak to someone in a civil manner and, you know, defend what they believe is right. How do you, um, you know, talk to them about, you know, don't let someone else's values get in your head and, you know, yeah, muddle what you believe. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating question. I would just, first, let me just say that, you know, what General Franks' story, and I, I don't know him, you know him uh, very closely, but what I'm sure he would say is that his story is an ordinary story that is highly accessible to anybody, right? And I think the fact that you have somebody like him putting so much time into this type of work is amazing. And, and uh, I think it's a very powerful example for people to take into account because it shows the power of ordinary people. When it comes to your beliefs and values and you're a young person, the, the story that comes to mind is actually one of uh, John F. Kennedy. So one of my good uh, mentors is, is a person named David Gergen, who I call affectionately the Dumbledore of politics. He was the presidential advisor for President Ford, Reagan, Clinton, Nixon. So he did four presidents. Um, and he's somebody that comments a lot on political affairs. And one of the things he, I, I asked him was, I was like, you know, David, I have such strong beliefs. I got to get my beliefs out there. And he's like, all right, you know, uh, he told me the story of John F. Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And somebody asked President Kennedy, you know, two years after, well, they asked his staff two years after, you know, what would you say was the most important value that President Kennedy espoused? And you would assume that he would say something like courage, you know, or you would say something like vision or passion or whatever. And what he, what the staff member said was that President Kennedy's most prized value was curiosity. And the reason why it was curiosity was that during the Cuban Missile Crisis, he was surrounded by 11 advisors, nine of whom, excluding his brother, Bobby Kennedy, all advocated the United States should launch weapons against the Soviet Union during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We came that close to nuclear war. And the only way that President Kennedy navigated that situation was by being curious and constantly asking questions and bringing in new perspectives and new ideas. And that is what allowed him to avert what could have been an existential crisis for humanity. And the reason why I bring that up is because I'm sure he had very strong beliefs. All of us have very strong beliefs. But wouldn't it just be a little bit cooler if we took a second to maybe step back and ask, why does somebody else believe something different? Because I think that that's a little bit more interesting and a little bit more fun. And in fact, it's the backbone of what's led progress in the past. Uh, as a young person, I'm sorry to say it, but you know, RFK, JFK's brother had this amazing coach is that youth is not a time of life, it's a stage of mind. The fundamental core belief behind being a youthful person is you're curious and energetic and you don't know True. everything. So it's about being curious. Show up to a conversation open-minded. It might make your day. That is great, great advice. So um, one of our programs we have is um, on the last day, um, we have a program. It's called Understanding Community Understanding. And it's just that we want our kids and our leaders to understand the problems or the issues in their communities and their their surrounding areas that are affecting them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, take a step back 
and find ways to fix them. You know, yeah. we that that's part of our our world's problems is we're a bunch of complainers. We're not uh-huh. a bunch of doers. Uh-huh. So, um, and on the last day of four star, General Franks um, always comes and he tells a great story about um, on 9-11 on the exact day once he was actually able to connect with uh, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense. And, um, you know, it took hours mm-hmm. for them to actually connect. And um, Mr. Rumsfeld um, asked him the most important question that he'd ever been asked in his life. And that question was, what are you going to do about it? And so that, um, you know, to General Franks, that was a very important question because, you know, he was put in charge of, you know, finding the individuals and that, you know, caused 9-11. And, but that's the, the call to action that he gives our students is Mm. what are you going to do about it? You know? And so I heard you say that, um, in our interview just a little bit ago. So, um, I appreciate what you're doing, um, with Bridge USA. Um, so if we do have listeners out there, cause we have about a thousand, um, alumni that have gone through our program in the last Amazing. 17 years. So, um, and many of them are still in, um, in college and they're on college campuses. So how do they find a Bridge USA, uh, organization? How do they maybe start a new chapter? Uh, You go to bridgeusa.org. It's super easy. You click on chapters and there you can find a chapter list. And if there isn't a chapter in your campus, it goes to the core of what you just said, Jill, which is doing. Um, It is incredibly easy to start a chapter. And I'll tell you a quick secret. The secret is that the fundamental problem that every person right now is facing in society, whether you run a business or you're an employer, you run a newspaper, you're in the media business, you're in the military, is political division. People do not know how to navigate it. And if you build an institution on your campus that allows people of difference to have a conversation, you, my friend, have just unlocked the key to the problem that everybody's currently struggling with. And so it's not just about the fact that you can create positive change, but it's about the fact that you're investing in your future career prospect. And uh, I'll just leave with this really quickly, Jill. When we started our uh, chapter at UC Berkeley, um, one of the things that that's on campus is you have all these consulting clubs. And the way that these consulting clubs recruit is by advertising their acceptance rate into the business school. The business school at UC Berkeley is called Haas. And we're like, man, how do we get, how do we compete with these guys? So we made it a goal. We said, you know, we're going to claim to have a higher acceptance rate if you participate in a bridge chapter to go to the business school. They're like, how are you going to get all these political nerds into the business school? The question that year that the business school asked in their application was, how do you build a company where you can accommodate for diverse viewpoints? That was the question. And lo and behold, our college chapter students knew how to answer that question. And it just, again, goes to the fact that everybody's struggling with this problem and you want to be on the vanguard of trying to solve it. So, um, and that's, you know, and I'm, that's exactly what you're trying to do. And, um, you're here, um, trying to solve a problem and you're creating awareness and you're inspiring change. And, you know, we thank you for that. And we thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule to speak with us today. And I will tell you, it was a real honor to have a conversation with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your time. 
Well, I appreciate that. And I always like to close with the same question to all of our guests. And so um, you don't have to think very hard because you're not um, that much older than 18. So I always like to close by asking our guests, if you could give your 18-year-old self a piece of advice, what would that be? It'll work out. It'll work out. It'll work out. Just do. Just keep doing and it'll work out. Well, that is great advice. So I appreciate your time today and um, please be able to, you know, reach out and find a Bridge USA uh, chapter or, you know, have the courage to step up and start your own and look for his podcast, The Hopeful Majority, every Monday. So um, with that, we're going to end. Thanks so much. Thank you again to REI Oklahoma for making this podcast possible. For nearly 40 years, the board, staff, patrons, and supporters of the nonprofit economic development REI Oklahoma have been committed to expanding Oklahoma's economic prosperity, earning the reputation of being one of the most comprehensive economic development organizations in the country. Business lines, training workshops, business consulting, and networking opportunities, as well as technical assistance and even commercial business space are made available to Oklahoma entrepreneurs and small businesses. For low and moderate income individuals and families, down payment and our closing cost assistance is offered. Learn more at reiok.org. On behalf of the four-star leadership with General Tommy Frank's team, I'm your host, Dr. Jill Green, and this has been the Core Principles of Leadership with General Tommy Frank's podcast. Now it's your turn, podcast listeners. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and let us know what you think of this episode and all our other episodes. Share this podcast with all the leaders and up-and-coming leaders in your circles. Be sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast listening platform. And don't forget to mark your calendars the last Friday of each month for another inspiring episode. So for now, as General Franks always says, go be feisty.